0: We have been studying the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be doing that again tonight. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, the first half of Mark chapter 2. The thing about the Gospel of Mark, if you recall, this is Peter's account, and it was um, written to encourage Christians in Rome who were beginning to be persecuted. Um, We believe the persecution that was under Nero, which was intense. And so as we're looking this semester at the Gospel of Mark, I want you to remember always this is written to encourage people who are suffering. And we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight as well. Uh, I also want you to remember this. The thing about the Gospel of Mark is it just flies by. It flies by, right? So chapter one, you know the second half of chapter one, which I'm skipping over. I can basically just tell you: look, Jesus heals a bunch of people, casts out demons, um, good to way to pray, and then the people find him and kind of, you know, keep bugging him. You know, that's kind of what happens. And now we get here to chapter two, and this is actually a pretty familiar story. If you've been around Christians, you've been around Christian church or youth group or anything like that, you may have heard this story about Jesus healing this paralytic whose friends basically bust open the roof of the house and lower him down in front of Jesus. You heard this story? A lot of you have probably heard this story. I think in a lot of ways, this is a story that by its familiarity, we might miss one of the most important points about the story. Because this is really a story about forgiveness. It's a story that generates a conflict with the religious leaders about who Jesus is and what he can do. And I would argue that for those who are struggling, those who are suffering, this is absolutely vital that they understand who Jesus is and what he has authority to do. And he's more than just a miracle worker. And he goes out of his way in this story to make sure that we know that. Because we need to know that. There's a, an old German poet, 19th century poet. He was famous in his day. I'm not sure if any of us have heard of him today, but his words maybe you've heard. It gets misattributed to all kinds of people, particularly like famous atheists who are all supposed to have said this, but it seems that this is the guy who said it. Heinrich Hein, allegedly on his final, uh, final deathbed was asked if he was afraid to meet God he was not a Christian. He's, as a matter of fact, was a, a person who had cursed God uh, through much of his life, but he was asked, now that you've come to your deathbed, are you afraid to meet God? And he said famously, God will forgive me. That's his job. God will forgive me. That's his job. I would submit to you that ours is a day and age in which many people trust in the same hope. God will forgive us. That's his job. But this is a story that is intended to teach us what a big deal forgiveness actually is. And even more importantly, it's a story in which Jesus reveals his authority and his commitment to secure that for us. So let's follow along the passage. I'm going to read it. Mark chapter 2. If you have a A Bible on your phone, I'm using the English Standard Version, the ESV. This is God's Word. And when he, meaning Jesus, returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him, meaning near Jesus, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above Jesus, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Let me pray briefly and then we'll dig into this story. Lord, we do thank you. And we pray, Lord, that even tonight that we could also be amazed but not just amazed. May we be moved to put our hope and trust in you. Reveal who you are and draw us to your beauty. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So there's basically three points that I wanna make tonight. Imagine that, a preacher that wants to make three points. Um, I, I wanna look at the bold move that these four guys engage in. It's a bold move, okay? I also though want us to look at the gracious savior, Revealed here. And then the penetrating question that Jesus asks at the end of this story. So, a bold move, a gracious Savior, and a penetrating question. Now, as I said, Jesus at the end of chapter one has been preaching and healing, and now it says that he returned home. Capernaum is his home. This is where he's living. I know he's Jesus of Nazareth, but he's here. Capernaum is his home at this period of time. So, he's back home. But word about him has spread. Imagine that. He's been healing and preaching all over the place. And the crowds are everywhere. In this episode, it seems that Jesus is actually at his own house. I don't know if you realize this. It says that Jesus is at home teaching. And people are crowding all around. They can't even get at the door. And so what happens? These four guys who are bringing their friend who's paralyzed on this mat, go up onto the roof. Now it wasn't like a really tall building, it was a flat roof and it was not that hard to actually dig through it and break through it. But do you get this? This is Jesus' house and they just tore a hole in the roof. Okay, that's a bold move, that's a bold move. They just, they just basically you know, tore a hole in the roof of Jesus' house. But here's what I want you to see. Jesus does not scold them. I don't know how you think about God, but if you think about doing things that are a little kind of bold and a little maybe even pushing the envelope, how do you think of God? Do you think of one, of him as somebody that's always scolding us if we get out of line? Now, Jesus doesn't scold these guys. And he does actually even help their friend, though I think he probably confuses them with what he says to the friend at first, but, but verse five says that Jesus saw their faith, saw their faith, and then he says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I, I hope we understand, Jesus, the passage does not say that Jesus healed their friend because of the faith of these people. He sees their faith, but Jesus is under no compulsion to do anything. Nobody controls him. That that actually is pretty clear in this passage. He invokes his authority even against what the scribes believe is proper. So Jesus is not sort of kowtowing to what people think or what people want him to do. He's doing what he wants to do. But he is touched by their faith. He sees it. He doesn't scold them. Instead, he turns to their friend and says son, your sins are forgiven. And we're going to talk about what that means. That's a little bit later. But let me just stop for a second and say, we need friends like this, don't we? We need friends who will bring us to Jesus when we can't even get up and walk to him ourselves. Now, That's easy to say. For some of you, you're like, oh, I'm so grateful. I really believe I have friends like that. Some of you may feel like I long for friends like that. I don't have friends like that. And and here's the thing, the hard thing. I can't promise (laughs) that, that I can guarantee that you'll get a friend like that. But I will say this. One of the ways that you find friends like that is to be a friend like that and to let people know that you actually need friends like that. See, I, I think sometimes you know our needs are obvious, I and mean, the paralytic's needs are obvious, but sometimes what's really difficult is when we hide our needs. And, and you know what happens when you do that? Listen, Jesus has given into his people all kinds of gifts, gifts of encouragement, gifts of help, gifts of, you know, all these gifts, And there are a lot of people who never get to use their gifts because they never get to see that people actually need them. Now, now actually, in 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul says that all the members of the body, all the parts of the body, are important and valuable. We need them all. And, and you know, the, the hand can't say to the foot, we don't need you. Okay? But I think sometimes in Christian communities, everybody wants to try to pretend that they've got it all together. And then a lot of people feel kind of superfluous. They feel like maybe I'm not really needed. And and, and I just wanna encourage you not only to look for friends like that, but to be a friend like that and to let your friends know that you need them. Sometimes it's obvious, it's probably more obvious than you think. I don't want to freak you out. But, but we think that we've got it all together, and most people can see through us. So we should probably not just keep trying to pretend. It really kind of is a barrier to actual community being what it should be, right? It's hard for friends to help us when we hide our need. But you can't hide your need from Jesus. One of the things it says in this passage, he can, he can read minds, now, how you take that has a lot to do with how you think about Jesus. Does that freak you out? Like he knows what the scribes are thinking in his heart and they, he calls them out on it. Does that encourage you, comfort you? It should encourage you. You know, one of the things it says uh, in the book of Romans chapter eight is that sometimes we're in such kind of anguish and groaning that we don't even know how to pray, and the Spirit intercedes, prays for us with groans too deep for words, and I love this little phrase, in accordance with God's will. So if you're like, I'm not really sure even how to pray, the Spirit is praying, right? In other words, God knows what you need. You can't hide it from Jesus, and Jesus reveals himself here as such a gracious Savior. Like I said, he doesn't scold the friends. Instead, he speaks tenderly to the paralytic, addressing him as son and telling him his sins are forgiven. Now, this offends the scribes, doesn't it? It offends the scribes, and they have a good reason to be offended. They understand the significance of Jesus' words of forgiveness. What do they say? They say, this is blasphemy. No one can forgive sins except God alone. So here we are in chapter 2 of Mark. And Jesus is already making an implicit claim to deity. I don't know if you have heard, like there are people that will say, well, Jesus, you know, it didn't really dawn on him that he was the Messiah until later, kind of eventually he kind of figured it out. Um, Eventually he kind of realized he had to go to the cross. No, (laughs) this is Mark chapter 2. He knows what's in their heart. He knows that they're offended and they regard it as blasphemy. Blasphemy is a death punishable offense. The Jews were not allowed to invoke the death penalty except for blasphemy. The Romans said, you can do that. And so here, here, he knows that's what they're thinking, he knows that's what they're charging him with, and he still goes right at them, okay? I hope you see in that the intentionality of Jesus. Make no mistake, Jesus is revealing who he is here. The scribes are right. This is a claim to deity. But I wonder how those words sound to the paralytic and his friends. See, the scribes get it. I don't know if the paralytic and his friends get it. They're probably like saying, you know, uh, okay, forgiveness, cool, that's good. But we've got another issue here, right? Jesus, in case you hadn't noticed, you know, don't you sometimes feel like we have to tell God, you know, that he's not seeing things, you know? Jesus sees this situation, right? Right? But it, but it may seem kind of cruel of God, of Jesus here. Cruel, maybe even at the least inappropriate. What's going on? I think it helps to put yourself in the place of the paralytic. And think about this. If you were paralyzed, is it really such a big leap to think that you would... Long to be able to get up and walk. We don't know if the, the, guy, the four guys did this on their own, right? Or if the paralytic asked them to help. But I don't think it's too much of a stretch to think that what he wants more than anything is to be able to get up and walk. Now, that's not a bad thing, it's a good longing. But the thing is, when you have longings like that, when you have something that's really obviously broken, it's really easy to think that if only that were different, everything would be better. But Jesus loves this guy too much to let him live with that huge, crucially important misunderstanding he's not cruel when he says your sins are forgiven he's actually getting at an even deeper need that the guy has again in saying your sins are forgiven he's making a divine claim but i hope you see this he's also revealing the heart of god because god is not one who just wants to fix up our life so we can go on our merry way He is not like the divine pharmacist. Do you know what it's like when you treat God like the divine pharmacist? The divine pharmacist is the one who fills the script, but we get to write it. We get to make the diagnosis. God, here's what's wrong. If you would just do this, fill this script, then my life would be better. But God is not the divine pharmacist. He is the one who diagnoses and commits himself to heal the very deepest, needs that we have. Forgiveness and reconciliation with God himself. See, don't, don't, don't disconnect forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is not just like a status change. To be forgiven, to have your sins forgiven, is to have everything removed that would make God want to turn away from you. It is To open the door to reconciliation with the one who made you for himself. And this is what this man needs more than anything. It's what you need. It's what I need more than everything. But I so often make a different diagnosis. And I so often ask God to fill a different prescription. But Jesus loves this man too much to let him remain in this feeling that what I really need is to be able to get up and walk. And it is interesting, you know, at the end of the story, we don't know if the guy who gets healed, what, what does he think about this? It doesn't say that he worships Jesus or anything. There's another story about some lepers that um, Jesus heals, 10 lepers, and one of them comes back. One of them comes back and throws himself at Jesus' feet And and in the Greek, it says, worships him. And you know, Jesus does not say, get up, you blasphemer. I'm just a, a man with the gift of healing. No, he says, where are the other nine? Where are the other nine? Jesus accepts worship and says that he deserves it. That's strong, right? Forgiveness and reconciliation with God is our greatest need. And Jesus is committed to bringing it. See, here's the thing. Sometimes Jesus does not deal directly with your presenting problem. That's, that's a phrase that counselors like. When you, whenever you go in to see a counselor, you'll have your presenting problem, but it might not actually be the real issue, and good counselors are usually going to figure out pretty soon that the presenting problem isn't actually the real place they need to focus. Good friends figure that out sometimes, too, I have to warn you. But Jesus is not distracted by the presenting problem here. He goes for the actual deepest need that this guy has. And sometimes that confuses us because sometimes the presenting problem seems so obvious and so huge to us, it seems like it's the most important thing and God may make a different diagnosis. So here's the question I think we have to ask ourselves. What is it that we think we need more than forgiveness and reconciliation with God? What is it that we think we need more than forgiveness and reconciliation with our God? Maybe another way to put that question, maybe to help you think about what that answer might be, is what, if you never got it, would tempt you to wanna to turn away from God? In other words, what are you, 18, 19, 20, sitting here, right? It's, it's, it's one thing to have issues, and, and real issues, right? But what if when you're 35, 40, 45, it's still not fulfilled in the way you hoped? Is there something like that that would make you wanna say 20 years from now, if God hasn't come through on this thing yet, then I'm not sure I wanna follow him anymore? It's a good way to actually diagnose what's in our heart, what do you think you need, what do I think I need more than forgiveness and reconciliation with the one who made us for himself. And that's what Jesus is trying to drive to. Look at this penetrating question in verse 9, and I wonder how we would answer this question. Jesus says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Which is easier, to say you're forgiven, or to say, you, you get up and walk, right? I, I, at one level, if you, don't, if, if, you, if you just kind of react, you might think, well, it's pretty easy to just say, I forgive you. I mean, we do that all the time. Like, we live in a day and age where people just say it all the time. Now, I would argue that actually forgiving people is way harder than just saying it, okay? And I'm gonna say something more about that in a little bit. But I, I do think that there's a lot of confusion in our day and age about what our deepest need really is. And Jesus is not interested in letting people think of him as a mere magician. And he presses the point here. He says, which is easier? To say, I forgive you, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk. And then what does he say? But that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, do you see what he's doing here? He is pressing the issue of whether or not the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. You know, when I was in seminary, one of my professors, Dan Doriani, um, had us use this passage to learn a particular way of interpreting the Bible, which is to take a narrative passage and plot the drama and find through a dramatic peak. Where is the tension the highest? Is it when these guys kind of walk up and are like, oh, can't get in? what are we going to do now? Well, there's a little bit of drama there. Is it when they climb up on the roof and and break it open and the dust and the dirt starts falling in Jesus' hair, um, is that when the dramatic peak, when everybody's like, what's going on up there? Well, I think the drama is pitched up a little. How about when they drop this guy through the floor, through the ceiling, right in front of Jesus? And everybody's looking there. It's obviously, you know, I imagine he probably stopped what he was talking about right, as that happens, and everybody's like, oh gosh, what's going to happen, right? Or is it when he says, your sins are forgiven? No, I think the dramatic peak is the moment after Jesus says that you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, take up your mat, and walk. You know why? Because at that moment, Jesus is staking his authority to forgive sins on whether or not that guy can get up. And he does it intentionally so that we would know that we need more than just a miracle worker, more than just one who can heal us. I know we long for healing, and that's right and good. As a matter of fact, all healing is pushing back the effects of the fall, which Jesus came to do. It's even a pushing back of death, But Jesus came not just to push back death, but to defeat it. See, to heal takes a commanding word. But to forgive, that's going to take the cross. That's going to take the cross. Listen, Jesus wants us to know that he has authority to forgive sins. Do you really think that that's important? Or, or do you kind of empathize or sympathize with Heinrich Hein? Well, I know God will forgive me. That's his job. No, listen, forgiveness is a really big deal, right? And that's why he says, I have authority to do this. Do you know, I mean, know that he has authority, divine authority to forgive you and welcome you into his embrace? And have you submitted to his authority. There's a fascinating verse in the letter of 1 John, chapter three, verse 20, listen to these words. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. One of the most important questions for living the Christian life is, can God tell your heart no? When you feel full of shame when you feel dirty and ugly in his sight can god's authority tell your heart no and jesus says it's really important that you understand he has authority to forgive sins he wants you to know that he has authority to forgive sins because you need it and so do i We need to know that he has that authority, and we need to see his heart and his commitment to secure that forgiveness. Remember those words, of course God will forgive me, that's his job. We tend to treat God's forgiveness so glibly in our day, but I guarantee you there are people in this room that know how incredibly difficult it is to forgive. And if you knew their stories, you would learn a lot about forgiveness and what a big deal it is. We must never make light of forgiveness because Jesus never made light of forgiveness. As I said, healing took a word of command, but forgiveness required his death and he will go there willingly. Now, as we come to a close, why do you think Peter wants to make sure that the suffering believers in Rome remember this story. Remember, Peter dictates this account to Mark to send to the suffering believers in Rome. Why did Peter make sure that this story was included? Well, I, I think a couple of reasons. One, community is vital, particularly when you're struggling and suffering, right? These four guys... We need people like that. We need a Christian community like that, right? But I also think this. Peter wants them to remember that even persecution and death are not the worst thing. Being unforgiven and unreconciled to our God is the worst thing. And Jesus was committed to delivering us from the worst thing Even from the beginning of his ministry, he's driving to the cross. He's not backing away from the conflict with the scribes and the Pharisees that will sign his death warrant. Healing is a big deal, right? I love this quote by Bill Lane. He says, Healing is a gracious movement of God into the sphere of withering and decay, which are the tokens of death at work in a person's life. Consequently, every healing is a driving back of death and an invasion of the province of sin. But Jesus is committed to not just pushing death back with a healing of a paralytic who's going to die again. He's committed to putting death to death by his own death that he didn't deserve. And that's what suffering people in Rome need to know. And that's what you need to know, and it's what I need to know. Jesus has authority to forgive sins, and he has a commitment to provide for that forgiveness with his own blood. That's what we need to live. That's what we need to die. Let's pray together.